chapter 13, verse um, 32. And uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful to be here today. We are thankful for uh, the various ways you're reminding us of your kindness in, in sending your only son into the world that we might have life. I pray that today would be a rich time in the word that you would uh, send forth your word in power, in the spirit, and with full conviction, and that we would receive your word in the joy of the Holy Spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, earlier we sang a hymn, a very familiar hymn by Isaac Watts, Joy to the World. Uh, it, it calls us to rejoice at the arrival of the Son, Jesus Christ. And uh, it even calls all of creation to recognize him down to the rocks and hills and, and plains, rejoicing. But the celebration also becomes a prayer, if you, if you noticed it. The third stanza, No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. That's the prayer. Why? He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. The people singing, though they know that things aren't quite right yet, we still suffer from the effects of sin. Sorrows grow over things like cancer and earthquakes and broken relationships and harsh words and disobedient children and rumors of war and the death of loved ones. In this sense, thorns still infest the ground. The world groans under the curse. And we feel it, and sometimes to the point of struggling to sing joy. But today's passage, I hope, will help us sing and pray these words with greater confidence. Even while sin and sorrows cloud life, we can be confident that Jesus did in fact come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is, is found. Some of those blessings come by a covenant that God made with David over 3,000 years ago. And as we return to Acts 13, we'll see that God sent Jesus to bring those very blessings to us. So I want to pick up where we left off in Acts 13. Paul is preaching to Jews. He, he summarizes God's, God's grace to Israel throughout their history. And his primary goal is to show that God's grace toward Israel is going to climax in the gift of God's Son. Verse 23, he says, Of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. There's the climax of God's grace throughout Israel's history. That clues us in to where He's going. God promised Israel a Savior in Scripture that Savior is going to come through the line of David. That Savior came in the person of Jesus. 
And then Paul preaches Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, followed by three Old Testament quotes. Read with me, starting in verse 32. We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Psalm 2 was our focus last Sunday. By resurrection, Jesus fulfills the portrait of God's king in Psalm 2. But now Paul adds Isaiah 55, verse 3, to the mix. I will give you, that is you all, the holy and sure blessings of David. But what are these holy and sure blessings of David? How is it that they come to us? And what do they mean for our lives now? And I want to spend the rest of our time answering those three questions. So let's begin with this one. What are these holy and sure blessings of David? If you uh, look back at Isaiah 55, verse 3, uh, you'll notice different wording probably in your, in, your, in your Old Testaments than what you see from Paul's quotation here. And, and that's because Paul is, is quoting from the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew. But if you look at Isaiah 55, verse 3, in your English translation of the Hebrew, uh, you'll you'll have something like steadfast, sure love, that's the, the ESV, or faithful mercies, that's the New American Standard, or, or promises assured, that's the Christian Standard. Uh, we, re- we really don't have an English word that by itself captures uh, the, the Hebrew term hesed. Okay? In a context like this one, it conveys God's loving resolve to fulfill his obligations to the covenant. The thing is, is that hesed in Isaiah 55 verse 3 is in the plural. And so the idea is that we have many expressions of God's loving resolve. Many expressions of God's covenant commitment to David. And I want to explore those many expressions by turning first to 2 Samuel 7. We're going to be flipping around a lot. I've got some of the words on the screen if you don't want to go there. But if you want to go there, 2 Samuel chapter 7. God has revealed His his purpose and His will for mankind through a series of interrelated covenants. And one of those covenants is the covenant He made with David. 2 Samuel 7 is the basis for the Davidic covenant. And some of the promises God would fulfill during David's lifetime and some of those promises He would fulfill after David's lifetime. And we're interested in those He's going to fulfill after David's lifetime. So let's pick it up. 2 Samuel 7, second half of verse 11. 
Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son, and when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Okay, so we're going to run through some things that Ben's going to get to in a few months, most likely. So when, we, when Ben gets to 2 Samuel 7, we have to pretend like we never heard this sermon, okay? And we all be wowed by the things he's... But also, notice first that the Davidic covenant is wholly a work of God's grace. David initiates nothing. It comes by God's unilateral, one-directional uh, resolve. God will enact the promises quite apart from David's doing. I mean, soon David, he says, is going to die. So how could these grand promises really depend on him anyway? God will enact their fulfillment. Also, in, in, in making the covenant with David, God advances his promise to bless all the nations through Abraham's offspring. Okay? Like, like Abraham, God is going to make David's name great. Uh, we, we, you, that comes out in, in verse 9, actually. And the notion of God raising up offspring, who shall come forth from your body, the only other place you find that is with is with God's covenant with Abraham. In other words, the way God will bless all the nations is by giving David a house, by which he means a dynasty, a kingdom, and a throne. The house has to do with an offspring. The kingdom has to do with place. The throne has to do with authority. Now, the question that remains open-ended in 2 Samuel 7 is, you know, is, is how exactly is this going to play out? It's not all that clear. Uh, the, Lord, the, the Lord makes it very clear in the father-son dynamic that loyalty was of utmost importance for the king. And if the king in David's line isn't loyal, though, God disciplined him. He, he removed him from the throne. And that's the pattern that you get with Solomon, and then Rehoboam, and then Jeroboam, and all the others in, in David's line. But, but even then, God still shows that he's committed to his word to preserve David's offspring and kingdom and throne. So there's really two options you're, you're left with in 2 Samuel 7. Either God will perpetuate David's throne by raising up an offspring who rules and then dies... And then raising up another offspring who rules and then dies. And raising up another offspring who rules and then dies. Or God eventually raises up a loyal offspring in David's line who lives forever. Those are your options. 
So keep that tucked away and turn next to Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. God is, as Israel's history goes on, God continues to remind his people of this covenant he, he established with, with David. We are centuries later, exile it's on its way, and all hope seems lost, but, God, lost, but, but God's covenant with David stands. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts We'll do this. Now why, so why should the people hope? Because the unstoppable, jealous passion of God will accomplish something awesome. A future offspring in David's line will, will shoulder the entire burden of government. Now as history shows, including our own current history, that's normally a bad thing. The more power a sinful man has, he is sure to abuse it. Ah, but this is a different man. He is prince of peace, it says. The rule of this future David will create peace, shalom. The idea isn't just a cessation of conflict, but the whole moral order put right Beneath God's reign. And notice also that his kingdom is is without end in terms of of space. Uh, It says it has no end. and means they're in the sense of border. You, You can't even see its borders. And in terms of time. It lasts forever. From this time forth and forevermore. Isaiah 11 then goes on to add even even more to this picture. If you want to flip over one page to Isaiah 11, verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Remember, Jesse was David's father. So the point is that a new David is coming to take the throne. What is he like? Verse 2 tells us. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. 
So included within the Davidic covenant is God's promise to bring a son who rules with perfect wisdom and justice. He's not swayed by man fear. He is not swayed by gossip and he tolerates no wickedness. He possesses perfect discernment to do right all the time and he's got the power to achieve every decision he makes. And his rule will even create a new world. Verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now I want you to imagine for a minute that you're in a foreign land. You're ruled by cruel oppressors. You wished you were home, but then you remember there is no home. They destroyed it all. And violent men killed some of your family. And with hooks and chains, they hauled you into their cities. And the songs on the streets aren't those songs you you heard in, in Zion growing up, but the noise of pagan feasts and drunken festivals. Justice is forgotten. Everywhere feels unsafe. Sin brought these curses Sin destroyed this people. Sin caused death. And soon, sin will be the end of you too. That is the situation in exile. Now imagine a friend shows up at your door. Knocking ferociously. And he he brings you a word from God's prophet Isaiah. And you know Isaiah speaks the truth because the exile came just as God said. But now he brings another word. A king from David's line is coming. His rule will, will so reverse the curse that the broken world becomes a new Eden-like paradise. And he's going to rule from Zion and he's going to make the entire earth the Lord's sanctuary. The earth, it says, shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's good news when you're, ex- when you're in exile. It's light in the darkness. These are just a few expressions of God's loving resolve to David. A forever king sitting on a forever throne, bringing a forever kingdom, blessing the nations with a new world order and a new creation under the glory of God's peace. And I haven't mentioned God restoring Israel under the new David from Ezekiel 37. Or the tent of David possessing the nations in Amos 9. And I haven't mentioned any of the promises that come in the Psalms. But you get the idea. These these are grand and glorious blessings that are given to the future king in David's line. 
But how does God bring these blessings to us? That's our next question. Paul indicates in Acts 13, God will give you all these blessings. How exactly does that happen? Well, let's go to Isaiah 55 now. And we'll camp out there the rest of the time. Isaiah 55. Page 615 if you're using the Pew Bible. You've got to go there now because I didn't put any words of these texts on the screen. Isaiah 55 closes a very important section in Isaiah. You, you, might find, you might find a few rays of hope kind of peppered throughout Isaiah 1 to 39, but largely the front end of the book is, is just him calling out that judgment is coming. It, it, it's pending for, for Judah. But once that passes, uh, Isaiah 40 kind of begins a, a shift. There, there's a shift in Isaiah's message and God's message of comfort, comfort, he says to my people. It, it begins and, and that transpires all the way through Isaiah 55. God is now working for their redemption and Isaiah 55 stands as the climactic invitation of the God of comfort. He has opened the way to life and it begins this way. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters and he who has no money. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which isn't bread and your labor for that which doesn't satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Now, in order to understand the invitation here, we need to understand the imagery. Where where does this imagery come from? Well, Isaiah is using Old Covenant language, the the, 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 the language of the law. He's, He's using Old Covenant language to describe Israel's pitiful spiritual condition. For instance, Israel was completely dependent on the Lord to provide water in the Promised Land. It wasn't like... Egypt, where he had all these canals feeding it uh, off the Nile. You, it, was, it, was, it was hilly. It was, they were utterly dependent on the Lord to provide water in the promised land. And, and in Deuteronomy, we see that, that part of the covenant was that if they obeyed the covenant, God supplied the water and the land was plentiful. But if they did not obey the covenant, right, God would shut the waters off. The people would suffer. So to be thirsty was to be under God's curse. That's exactly how Isaiah portrays Israel in exile. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 30. The people give themselves to idols. And so God turns around and says, You shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. Or Isaiah 5, verse 3, the people don't regard the deeds of the Lord, they're ignoring him. And so he says, therefore my people go into exile for a lack of knowledge, their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. 
In other words, the physical covenant consequences reveal a deeper spiritual problem. They have forsaken the Lord. They have forsaken the fountain of living waters and hewn out for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water, to use the words of Jeremiah 2. Or uh, when he speaks of those without money here. Uh, we can go back in Isaiah 44, verse 6, and we can learn why they don't have any money. They're working hard. They're getting paid in silver. What are they doing? They're weighing out the silver to the blacksmith so he can make them an idol out of it. So they've also bankrupted themselves on chasing after the idols of the nations. So God is inviting these kinds of people. Desperately thirsty covenant breakers. Spiritually bankrupt idolaters. God is inviting them to come and nourish themselves in a new relationship with himself in his kingdom. You see, for God to invite the thirsty to the waters was for God to say their curse has been removed. He's welcoming them back to himself. Isaiah 12 even characterizes this. He says, he says to them, you will say in that day, and this is that day he's talking about, I will give thanks to the Lord for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. And he says, with joy, you shall draw water from the wells of salvation. From the wells of salvation. So this isn't just come and, and get a, a drink of H2O. This is coming and getting God. The wells of salvation. Or, or consider the use of, of wine and milk here. Under the Old Covenant, wine and milk. If you had wine and milk, that meant your land was, was plentiful. right? God's covenant blessings were, were flowing. In fact, God uses wine and milk to illustrate the abundance of His future kingdom under the Messiah. You can find this in Genesis 49 and, and uh, Zechariah. I can't remember the passage now. Uh, Zechariah 3. And um, Joel chapter 3. So for God to invite idolaters to come and buy wine and milk is, is for God to be inviting these people into the fullness of His kingdom. Into the plenty and bounty of His kingdom. Come on in and, and get yourself some of this bounty. So He's calling them to what truly satisfies a covenant relationship with himself. That's why it ultimately climaxes in the invitation. Come to me. Come to me, he says. Here that your soul may live. The point being, life is more than physical existence. Life is fellowship with God in his kingdom. And that's why he adds the, the covenant then in verse 3. I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. So that's, that's what Paul calls the holy and sure blessings of David here. When, when you come to me, he's saying, I will bring you into all the glorious benefits of my promises to David. That's literally, I'm going to cut for you a covenant. 
for you. It's going to be for your advantage. advantage. All these blessings for you. And, and it's not just a temporary kind of relationship he's talking about here. It's an everlasting one. An everlasting covenant. One that can't be broken anymore. Think of, of hearing that, that invitation while, while coming out of exile. The forever king sitting on the forever throne, bringing the forever kingdom, blessing all nations with a new world order and a new creation under the glory of God's peace. And you get to share in all of that for free? God is saying, come. I don't care if you, have, you don't have any money. You come. You can have it for free. You're not just coming. You're running. You're running to the king. Now, the lingering question, of course, is how does the most holy God invite such covenant breakers and idolaters so freely? I mean, isn't there a price to pay for the sin they've committed? Doesn't the covenant spell out all kinds of punishment for sin that they deserve? Even the Davidic covenant spells out awful punishments for the wicked. They will be put under the feet of the Davidic king. He will crush them. What about all of that? Well, we have to read Isaiah 55 in its larger context. And when we do, we find that someone else paid the price. Turn to Isaiah 53. What we find here is that bankrupt idolaters can enter covenant with God because someone else paid the penalty for their covenant breaking and for their idolatry. God paid it. God paid the penalty for their idolatry by crushing His servant in their place. So look at Isaiah 53, verse 5, for example, where we see the servant suffering as a substitute. It says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. So the idea being the guilt that we incurred, it's got to be punished. God is holy. And the Lord's solution was to place the punishment we deserved on the servant He gave. So our entry into the covenant comes at the cost of the servant. And not only that, it is implied in Isaiah 53 that the servant will also rise from the dead to give the people He died for His righteousness. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. How is he going to see his offspring if he dies as their substitute? The only way he can see them is if he's alive again by resurrection. 
Then comes the righteousness part. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Again, you see his obedience unto death, making people righteous. God, as a result, is going to divide him with a portion with the many, and, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. That implies resurrection. That's how God's blessings come to us. That's how these blessings come to us. The servant dies in our place, and the servant rises from the dead to count his people righteous before God. And that's how, <clears throat> that's how God can say, come without money and without price to covenant breakers. Right? Have, you, have you noticed ever in, in, your, in your scriptures that as soon as the, the work of the servant is complete, chapter 54 explodes, sing, O barren one. And in chapter 55, come, everyone. So because of the work of the servant in death and resurrection, the next two chapters are about sing and come. This is how God can, can say these things. That's how the holy and sure blessings come to God's people so freely. They come through the death and the resurrection of God's servant. And that's why Paul quotes Isaiah 55 verse 3 about Jesus' resurrection. Jesus is the servant who died for our sins and rose again from the dead. And by virtue of his birth in the line of David and by virtue of his resurrection, well, guess what that makes him? That makes him the loyal son of David who will live forever. There's no more need for king to rise and fall and die. King for rise and fall and die. Because this king never failed. And the only reason he went into the tomb was for our sins, not for sins that were his own. And so God raises him from the dead and vindicates him and gives him a throne forever on the throne of David. And there he reigns forever, no, longer, no more to die again. So Paul is just connecting these servant texts and Davidic king. And there's, there's even evidence in, 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 in uh, like at the beginning of Isaiah 53, he calls the servant. He says he was like a shoot, a root that came up. Remember the root from Jesse's? The servant is, he seems to be the Davidic king. And, and then in, in verse uh, Isaiah 55, verse 4, he calls the Davidic king a witness. And the only other place that's applied to uh, in Isaiah is to, to, to uh, the servant. So the David king is also the servant. So he's, he's combining these things. Paul sees it. He links it to Jesus because Jesus fulfills these things. Jesus is the loyal son of David who reigns forever. And because he reigns forever, he's going to spread his blessings on earth far as the curse is found. So question three, what do these blessings mean for our lives now? If, 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 if these holy and sure blessings of David find their fulfillment in the risen Jesus, and if God offers these covenant blessings for free, then we have every reason to come to him, first of all. Come to the Lord for true life. Like that, that is the 
rational, most common sense thing to do. is If he has done this for us and opened the way to life, we come to him. We glut ourselves on what is truly satisfying. You see, God isn't a killjoy. He's telling you to pursue true joy in his presence. Why give yourselves to idols anyway that will never satisfy and leave you bankrupt? We can make idols out of things that entice us, things that we fear, like people, things that we trust, like financial security and more comfort and escape from difficulties. We can make idols out of things that we need. In the, in the Bible, people don't just make idols out of sun, moon, and stars and little figurines. They worship sex, money, power, control, a nation's strength, political leaders. But none of these satisfy the soul. They will bankrupt us. God alone satisfies the soul. So the plea of Isaiah applies also to us. Come to the waters of God's salvation. Come and experience the blessings of God's promises to David. If you don't come to the Lord, you will find yourself under the curses that are laid out in these covenants. You will suffer torment in the presence of King Jesus. But if you come, you will reign with King Jesus. You will share in the manifold blessings of his kingdom, especially the revelation of his glory. You will know true healing in your relationship with God, and you will have true life by his spirit. A further exhortation that Isaiah gives comes in, in, in verse 6 here. is to seek the Lord in, in repentance. Seek the Lord while he may be found, he says. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Why should we repent? Why forsake your wicked ways? He follows that with three reasons. God's ways are higher God's word will prevail, and God's creating a new world. God's ways are higher. Verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher in your, than your thoughts. Listen, that verse isn't in your Bible to punt to every time you run into something mysterious. It is in your Bible to say, forsake your wicked ways because God's ways are better. Like, way, 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 way better. How far is that? Heaven is above the earth better, better. So quit your wicked ways because God's are better. And also, God's word will prevail. Verses 10 to 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth uh, and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. 
It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So, so all of those promises that we talked about earlier today in the Davidic covenant, they are guaranteed to succeed. Take the check to the bank. It's not going to bounce. There's no question of whether Jesus will actually spread his kingdom as far as the curse is found. He will. God said so. God's word creates history, and we have it. Therefore, repent and seek the Lord before Jesus returns. And we should seek the Lord because those who do get to enter God's new world. Verse 12. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it shall make a name for the Lord an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. You hear that? For those who seek the Lord it's going to be a party like whole, whole creation type of party and a never ending Party. The whole creation will sing and clap its hands. Look at it. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. You know what that's referring to? The garden after they sinned and God cursed the ground with thorns. Jesus wore the crown of thorns to bear the world's curse and to bring a new world where there ain't any more thorns. The earth will become God's sanctuary. Those are pretty compelling reasons to get rid of our sin. Just shuck it, guys, and go to the Lord. Know Him in the Word. Pray and get alone with God and, and fill your soul with these promises. Also, while you seek Him, call the nations to join you. Look back at Isaiah 55, verse 4. It says, Behold, I made David a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Now, it seems to me that he's talking about the historical David here who was a witness through his life on earth and the Psalms that he wrote, which point forward to Jesus. He, the, the, the apostles even called David a prophet. He was a witness. But then we get this in, in verse 5. Behold you. As in you singular. Some take it to be Israel. I take it to be the future David. I made that David a witness to point to another David. Behold you, that David, shall call a nation that you do not know. And a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. What's the point? 
The point is that once God glorifies the new David, what's he going to do? He's going to call all nations to himself. And what happens in the book of Acts? Repeatedly, the apostles say, God has glorified his servant, Jesus. How does his call go out to the nations? Through the voice of his people. As they witness and share the gospel with the people they meet. In other words, Jesus, right now, reigning on his throne, is calling all nations through his church. So what else do these blessings mean for us? It means we share the gospel. We, we call the nations to join us. We, we preach the universal reign of Jesus Christ and we carry these same words to the nations that we heard. Come, hear, live. You don't need any money. You don't have to do any works. God did it all in his son. Come on in. He paid the price. And then lastly, hope in the future kingdom. The story of Israel's exile really reflects the story of the entire human race in Adam. Adam's sin banished him from the garden. It exiled the human race from fellowship with God. Adam's relationship with Eve outside of the garden was full of shame and tension and an abuse of power and Blame shifting. Well, in Adam, we too are a people in exile that need rescue, that need deliverance. We, we experience conflict within our own family. Our own sin harms others and profanes God's name. Our broken bodies keep breaking more. We too have leaders and governments that do not rule with justice. People are swayed by party over principle. We witness division and hatred on the streets. People are confused as the moral fabric of society gets ripped to shreds. Oh, we need hope in this exile. And God has given us hope by giving us a son. Listen, he hasn't just given us the promise of a son. He's given us the son himself. He proved his faithfulness to his word by giving us Jesus, which means he's not leaving us here forever. He's not leaving us in exile forever. We, we have hope Jesus died and then rose again to guarantee that his blessings will flow far as the curse is found. All corrupt kings will be replaced by the true king. All enemies will be cut off and punished. All corruption will be ended. All our bodies will be raised and made new. All ethnicities will be singing. All the earth will be better than Eden ever could have dreamed. All relationships will be righted and all your patient endurance will be rewarded. That is what's coming. And we have God's word in scripture that it's coming. He says, by, on the authority and on the basis of Jesus Christ's resurrection, I will give you all the holy and sure blessings of David. Let's pray.